here, chapter one, uh, chapter two, verse one, it says, "In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered." This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So, that's setting this into the historical context, we see that this event is happening when Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, is on the throne and he decides he's going to send his entire empire into registration, into a, a census. And so this was not a very easy thing to do in those days because you didn't have the internet like we do where every 10 years when we do a census, it's just mailed to us or we log on to a website and we tell them how many people live in the house and then we're done, right? But in those days, it was much more complicated. We see uh, here in verse 3, that all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So this was kind of interesting that he had to, he couldn't just register as a citizen in Nazareth, which is where he lived. He had to travel the 90 miles or so from Nazareth to Bethlehem because that's where his lineage was from. That's where his family ultimately came from as he was a descendant of King David. King David and his line, of course, had been broken uh, through many years of turmoil. And uh, we read all about that in the Old Testament and how uh, God brought judgment on the people of Israel through uh, exiles and, and really just the whole thing of David's line was was lost by this point, but they still had enough knowledge of their genealogies to keep track of who was from what family. And so uh, Joseph is of David's line and lineage, so he has to travel to Bethlehem, which is David's city, to register for the census. And uh, we're told in verse 5 that he was to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, which means that they were legally uh, engaged to be married, but they hadn't yet formally been married. Um, but because there was a legal agreement there, she came with him to be registered. And it says that she was with child. Of course, we know from the earlier part of Luke's story in chapter one that Mary was told she would conceive and bear a son uh, miraculously of, of the Holy Spirit. And so here she is, she's with child. And they, uh, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is a very familiar story. Right? We, we hear this every year around this time and, and it's good to be reminded of it again and again. But we're seeing this uh, basically just setting into the historical context of Jesus entering into our world. He actually came into our world at a, at a specific time in history and we can see from the scriptures that this was when Caesar Augustus was on the throne when Quirinius was governor in Syria. There are historical elements here that tell us that this isn't just fantasy. It's not just a made-up story. It happened in history. That's why we're given these details. Um, and so it's not myth. It's, it's actually happening in our, in our world. And we can trace these things back to historical records. So Jesus is born, and, and he uh, is born in a place where they don't have anywhere for him to stay, right? They, they, uh, they don't live in Bethlehem. They live in Nazareth. And so they're depending on either guest houses to stay in or a guest room or an inn. Um, 
And, and so there's no place for them to stay. Now, why is there no place for them to stay with this newborn baby? Um, well, there's not, real, there's not a lot of clarity on that from the text, but we can guess that either there were too many other visitors that they just didn't have the time to get there or didn't have a room when they got there. Uh, that's possible because everyone had to go and register for this census. So it's possible that there was just too many people too, influ- too many, uh, an influx of visitors to the city. Or it could be that the extended family that they have in Bethlehem uh, did not appreciate that Mary was pregnant and maybe didn't believe the story uh, that she gave them. And so they may have said, well, no, we're not, we're not going to do this for you, which uh, goes to say something about the heart of human beings, right? Um, but either way, they give birth to Jesus, Mary gives birth to Jesus. Joseph is just there helplessly standing by, I'm sure, like the rest of us men. And then they lay him in a manger, uh, which is a feeding trough, uh, and they had nowhere else to put him, which is showing us the humility of Jesus Christ entering into our world. It's amazing to see Jesus uh, enter into our world in such a humble way, in a way that a king does not deserve uh, to, to come into the world. Kings would be born or princes would be born and there would be fanfare. There would be excitement. There would be uh, all kinds of things happening to announce that birth. But in Jesus's case, he's born in a small town in, in obscurity, in, in a place where he didn't even have room for him to come. And so they had to lay him in a manger. Let me see in verse 8, this is where I want to hone in on is verse 8 through 14 specifically. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Again, this story is so familiar to us that I think we, we miss what's happening here sometimes. Um, there was no huge fanfare announcement of Jesus' birth to the places you would expect. It didn't happen in Jerusalem. It wasn't among the religious elites. It didn't happen to those who were in power or positions of authority. What happened is that in the dead of night, when everyone else is asleep, Jesus' birth is announced by a host of angels to a group of shepherds. Why, does that, why is that significant? Because it is actually pretty significant. It's actually kind of, it would have been shocking even in the, in, to the first audience of this, uh, uh, this gospel. The people who lived in the first century would have thought this was absolutely crazy. Because shepherds were not people that you would have chosen, that anybody would have really chosen, to tell this, this message to because shepherds were notoriously dishonest people. 
and they were untrustworthy. Uh, they, they lived uh, in a culture where they were pretty low on the, on the rung of society. And these are the shepherds that are working in the evening, overnight, uh, while the, probably the main group of shepherds who r- run this flock are asleep. And God chooses to tell these people specifically that Jesus is born. That tells us something. Dane Ortland, who's a pastor uh, and, and an author, he, he writes this, and I think it's helpful just to shed some light on it for us. He says, shepherds were not at the top of the social ladder in the first century. One rabbinic tradition uh, lumped shepherds together with tax collectors and revenue farmers, which is someone who leases farmland, and, and as those who have a particularly hard time repenting before God and making restitution to others in light of the notorious lack of integrity with which their job was carried out. New Testament scholar uh, Joachim Jeremias writes that first century shepherds were most of the time dishonest and thieving because they led their herds onto other people's land uh, against, without permission. So these socially marginalized, these people who are looked down upon and frowned upon in society are given a front row seat to the witnessing of Jesus's incarnation into the world. That's an amazing thing. And it demonstrates something to us. It demonstrates to us the heart of God. That the heart of God is not reserved for those who have all their ducks in a row, that their lives are in line. But really, he gives his grace to everyone who will receive it regardless of status, regardless of their knowledge, regardless of their strength. These these men that God showed this amazing thing to were probably the last people, or at least very low on the list of people we would have chosen to do this. But that's how God works. 1 Corinthians, Paul tells this church the same. He says, consider your calling brothers And sisters, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Meaning, not many of you had a lot of strength or or power or authority in the world. Not many of you were born with uh, a silver spoon in your mouth. Not many of you were born with super high intelligence. Most of us are just average people, right? And that's the reality. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I think that what we're seeing in the very entrance of Jesus into the world is this reality at play, tangibly, that, that God would come into this world in a way that was completely obscure from how we would do it, and that he would announce it in the middle of the night when no one else was awake to a group of people who were not seen with high respect. God reserves his grace for any who will receive it. But those who are low, 
and despised and understand our need, we're going to be much more ready to receive it. Now, let's look at verse 14 again, because I think this is where the, the heart of this sermon series of God and sinners reconciled kind of comes to, comes to uh, its fruition. It's, it's in the announcement of these angels and what they say to these shepherds. They say this, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We, we see that the, the announcement of Jesus' birth is an announcement of peace. Peace is what reconciliation is. It's another word for it, right? It's, it's synonymous with reconciliation. There is now, because of Jesus, where there was once a divide between us and God, is now a bridge. It is now healed. It is now restored to what it was supposed to be through Jesus. That this is what the birth of Christ uh, allows for and ultimately will accomplish as Jesus is uh, raised into a man and lives a sinless life and then goes to a Roman cross to die on behalf of sinners. We see that this is what results, peace between God and sinners. So let's spend a little bit of time just reflecting on that. What, what is peace? How does it work? How do we receive it? Let's, let's turn to do that. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5. I think there's, uh, there's probably no better place in the New Testament where this gets unpacked for us <clears throat> than right here in Romans 5. Romans 5, 1 to 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justified means we've been counted righteous because of the work of Christ as we believe in him. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what we're seeing here is the, the, Paul's going to continue to unpack this idea of peace and reconciliation with God, but he begins by reminding us that this peace we have with God is through Jesus Christ. There's nowhere else that we can find this peace. The peace that sinners need to find with God can only come through one source, and that is the Lord Jesus this peace with God is through our Lord Jesus Christ and through him we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So this whole sermon series, we've been unpacking three things. We've been unpacking first grace, which is the way into reconciliation with God. 
we've been unpacking joy, which is the response of our heart for this grace that we have in Christ and the peace we have with him. And, and then finally, we're, we're bringing this full circle into what it ultimately culminates to, which is peace, a right relationship, a restored relationship. And in these first five verses, we see all of these things coming together that Paul mentions all of them. He mentions grace. He mentions joy. He mentions peace. And this is what Jesus Christ came to give us. So according to Romans 5, 1 to 5, peace can be defined simply as a relational reconciliation between us and God through Jesus. And we have access to him. That's an amazing thing to think of, right? We have access to the grace in which we stand. That what Jesus has done is he has opened up the door that we can have a relationship with God again. This is pictured really profoundly in in the story of Jesus's death on the cross. And at the end of his life, as he dies on that cross, we're told that the curtain that separated the the temple, uh, the, the holy place from the holy of holies, this giant curtain that kept people out of God's presence was torn in two. But it wasn't torn in two from the bottom up, it was torn in two from the top down. And as Jesus dies to reconcile people to himself, this this, uh, divide that existed forever between people and God is removed. And so now we have full access to God the Father. But how do we get there? That's where verse 6 through 8 tells us. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what we're seeing is that the way into peace is through Jesus Christ, but it's specifically through Jesus Christ going to the cross for our sins. To take upon himself the sins that we've committed that he never committed. But he received our sin upon himself. He took the punishment that those sins deserved in order to make us at peace with God because there was no other way. We couldn't become uh, peaceful with God through our good works. We couldn't do it by law keeping. Uh, For thousands of years, the Jewish people had been trying from Moses to Christ to do that and they failed and continued to fail. And we will continue to fail to do those things ourselves. And so we needed a, a redeemer to stand in between us and a holy God. And that was Christ who died for us. While we were still sinners, he did that. It's an amazing thing. On the cross, in our place. And so today, while we focus on the birth of Jesus, and that's vital because without Jesus coming into the world, he would never have died and would never have rose again. Uh, it, it's, it's vital, though, that we see that, the, that it's not just baby Jesus that we focus on. We focus on the fact that that baby became a man who then ultimately died for us. That's what brings us reconciliation. Thirdly, Let's keep reading here, verse 9 through 11. Paul tells us what this peace accomplishes for us. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, 
much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So you see how Paul uses this word peace and reconciliation, these words interchangeably, and he's repeating himself a few different times that we have been reconciled to God. How have we been reconciled to God? By his death, right? What does that ultimately accomplish for us? Well, it brings us into right relationship with our Father in heaven again. We are ultimately saved by Jesus from God's wrath, right? Because sin deserves judgment and justice. And we would be the recipients of that justice and judgment if it were not for Christ stepping in our place and taking that wrath from us. And we are ultimately then brought into joy. Verse 11 says, more than that, we also rejoice through God, in God, through Jesus Christ. We, we need to sit under this reality that it is God who reconciles sinners to himself through Jesus Paul Tripp, uh, another author, I'll read for you here. He, he reflects on this as it relates to the birth of Jesus and Christmas. In one of his devotional books, he says, sin places us under God's judgment. Because we have rebelled against him and demanded our own way, we have again and again broken his law. Sin leaves us hopeless, The Apostle Paul describes our lives apart from this amazing grace of the birth of Jesus as having no hope and without God in the world, from Ephesians 2.12. The beautiful news of the Christmas season is that God wasn't willing to leave us in this tragic and desperate state. At Christmas, we celebrate a God who is glorious in his abundant love and patient mercy. The glory of the birth of Jesus becomes even more glorious when we see it through the humbling lens of the desperate condition that was the reason for his coming. Accept the very bad news of Christmas today so that you can celebrate even more joyfully its wonderfully good news. And I think that really does get to the heart of what we are trying to do here that if we don't recognize our need, we'll never appreciate the grace we've been given. Our need is dire and it's deep, but Christ came into this world to remedy it all for us, to save us from the wrath of God, to bring us into right relationship with God again, and to give us the joy that our hearts long for. We see Paul emphasizing in Romans 5 the relational healing that happens through Christ between us and the Father. And that's important. But I also think there's another dimension of this peace that the angels announce and are getting at, right? Peace on earth is, is what they say, right? On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The peace that God brings us brings us peace with him through Christ, but it also establishes the way to peace with one another. Paul doesn't get into this specifically in Romans 5, but he does write about it towards the end of Romans and and also in other uh, letters. 
the letter that stuck, struck me uh, as I was thinking about this was Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 to 22. Here, the Apostle Paul applies the peace that Christ brings to the world to how we as fellow Christians particularly should express that peace among ourselves. It says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now he's talking about the, the hostility that existed in, in the uh, first century between uh, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And, and because of uh, Roman persecution, there were a lot of Jewish believers who had to flee out of Jerusalem and they just spread across the world. And so here you had the church coming together between people of different ethnicities, different uh, mindsets, different traditions, different thoughts. And Paul says that Jesus Christ is our peace who made us both one and broke down the, the wall of hostility. How did he do that? Verse 15 tells us, by abolishing the law of, a, of commandments expressed in ordinances. He gets rid of the, the Old Testament law as an, as an obligation on us. And it says he created in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile to us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we're no longer strangers and aliens. Now, here's the reality. We live in the real world. We live in a broken world. We ourselves are sinful people and we struggle at times with relational unity. We struggle with... uh, you know, just differences of opinion and different thoughts and uh, different traditions. And, and I don't know if there's a time of year that really brings that reality to the surface quite like Christmas, right? We, we just struggle at times, especially when we're put into these, uh, these parties together, these celebrations, bringing families together, trying to make the best of it, right? But we can just really struggle to love each other well, to live in peace, to, to be harmonious with one another. We, that's just built into us as sinful people. But what we're reminded of is this, that, that not that Jesus' uh, uh, work ultimately just erases all of our struggles in this, but he gives us a path forward. And he gives us a way in which we can walk that, that does signify joy and unity, even among people who are of difference, differences of opinion and different minds. And we see that very profoundly in a, in a real divide between Jews and Gentiles, but we see that in many other ways throughout our lives and in our relationships with one another. And what the, what the peace of Christ that, that he himself is and came to bring us through his birth in this world and through his life and death and resurrection that peace that he brings us is meant to give us a path forward to peace with one another. We can have a reconciled relationship with God through Christ if we believe in him and trust in him. 
And then as we do, that opens up a, a pathway for us to have peace with one another as well. And that's really, I think, all of us would agree is the spirit of Christmas, the heart of Christmas, the thing that even culturally outside of the Christian message of Christmas, that's really what you see, right? We, uh, my, my family, uh, me and my boys and Crystal, we have a tradition. We watch the Muppet Christmas Carol every year, uh, and they will do that until they die with me. And so we are, we, I love that story. It's just such a fun telling of, of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. But the Christmas Carol, that, that whole book and the whole story is basically, here's this miser, this mean Scrooge, and he really isn't, isn't kind, he's greedy, blah, blah, blah. And then he has this change of heart. Well, we know as Christians that that change of heart doesn't come just because we have a, uh, you know, a moment in time where we see our life flash before our eyes. But that change ultimately comes and fully comes because Jesus Christ comes into our hearts and transforms us. He's not trying to change us from the outside in. He's changing us from the inside out. And he does that through the work of Christ and in, in, in the gospel and the good news that he brings us, that we slowly, gradually, over time, change and become more peaceful, hopefully, right? We, we, we should strive for that and long for that. And that's really what the New Testament points us to is that the peace that Jesus brought into the world is meant to translate into the peace we have among ourselves with others. So we get to celebrate that. We get to celebrate that we have peace with God, that we have been reconciled by being justified by faith. And we should also find ways and search for ways and ask God to help us to to live in peace with one another as well. Because I know there's so much hurt that can happen this time of year. I, I know it. And so there, there's, a, there's a real tangible thing here that God is trying to lead us to, not just in our relationship with him, although that's primary. There's also an overflow of that that happens in our lives together. And so let's keep the main thing the main thing, right? We say this a lot here in Let's make sure we're focused on what really matters, which is that Christ came. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He ultimately died on the cross so that we could be justified and right with God. And then that leads us into love for others. So with that said, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll conclude our service with a few more songs to sing together and uh, partake of the Lord's table if you would like to do that with us. Uh, Jesus, thank you again for the reminder that you are our peace, that you are, and that you have come into this world to preach peace, to to express this peace to, to those who are far off and to those who are near. And we pray, God, that you would give us um, hearts to receive this and minds to understand what we need to understand and that you would give us the grace we need to receive uh, the, uh, all that you have for us today. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the joy we can have here to celebrate this together as a church, and then ultimately as we go from here to our uh, parties and to our families and to the things that you have for us today. We pray we would keep your peace in our hearts as we go from here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're gonna.